Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll be reading our text together from verses 1 through 18. We've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians since the beginning of this year, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we're looking now at chapter 9, verses 1 through 18, as Paul gives an illustration of limiting his personal liberty in the area of receiving support or remuneration or compensation. And so in 1 Corinthians 9, it follows along right after he has spoken on the subject or written on the subject of Christian liberties in chapter 8, food, sacrifice, so idols. We look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 18. It reads this way. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do not only, or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you should not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written. Because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But I have used none of these things. Am I not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case? For it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under a compulsion For woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge. So as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Let's bow in a word of prayer before we begin our study once again. 
Our Father, as we come before your word once again, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would grant to our minds understanding, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see and understand you. That, Father, you would grant to me the words to speak, that, Father, you would be honored, that your word would be divided correctly. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've been following the news, a few weeks ago there was a Florida pastor, pastor of a small church, church was less than 50 people, who attracted international attention. It was on the evening news nearly every night just a few weeks ago. Why? Because he was going to do something that would affect our entire country. He publicized and promoted that he was going to burn stacks of Korans on 9-11 of all days because he wanted to send a message. When people heard about that, the news media caught it and it began to be headline news on the evening news. People around the world, Muslims, began to protest and there were demonstrations. There were burning of the American flag. There was weighing in by all sorts of political figures. He received hundreds of death threats. Certainly, though, under the law, he had the freedom to. Certainly, under the law, he wasn't breaking any federal laws. But the controversy erupted because why? Because him... Doing so in front of that little church out in Florida where no one or few people knew of who he was at first would have such a profound effect upon the entire world. How the world would look at the United States, especially those in the Muslim countries. How it would affect our soldiers as General Petraeus weighed in and said that it would perhaps jeopardize the safety of our own soldiers who were serving overseas. How it would affect those who would be missionaries in countries that were predominantly Islamic. How it would affect travelers who would go to countries that would have other beliefs such as Islam. That Thursday, two days before September 11th, though, he decided not to. In fact, he decided not to, and he decided that it would never happen, that he would never burn a Quran. Now, certainly he had the freedom to do it, as I shared. He wasn't breaking any laws, and to many people would agree that, though it would have far negative consequences for the U.S. and for Christians around the world, even though he was a very small church pastor... And in that same vein, the theme and the idea is the same in that the liberties that we have, the freedoms that we have, we may have the right to do it. It may not be breaking the law. It may be according to the law or whatever it might be, or this law doesn't speak of it. The Word of God doesn't say anything about a particular issue, but the effects can be profound, can be significant. It can affect others for the good or for their detriment. We've been looking at this very subject of the things that the Word of God doesn't speak specifically to, or that principles may or may not apply to, the subject of Christian liberties. And it's important as we look at this chapter, chapter 9, of the flow of Paul's thought when we exercise those liberties we have as Christians. And you remember when we looked at chapter 8 a couple of weeks ago? We looked at the subject of meat that was sacrificed to idols in relationship to Christian liberties. You see, because back then, 
Those that didn't know the Lord, those who were pagans, those who were idolaters, would take their food, their meat, and they would sacrifice it to idols. And the reason why they would do that was because they believed all of these evil spirits were floating around just waiting to get into your body. And the way they would get into your body was they would attach themselves to the meat. And when you ate the meat, you would consume the evil spirit, and boom, you would be possessed. So in order to purify their meat, they brought it to the temple. And in the temple, it was divided into three portions. One was put in front of the idol. One was given to the priest. And one was served at either a temple corner of a restaurant or maybe sold in the butcher shop in the back of the temple. And those who were former idolaters, those who were formerly part of this whole pagan ritual in which people would become not only partakers of the meat, but they would become immoral because part of it was part of the, the immorality that would surround this entire worship practice that they had, would sometimes see another believer who didn't have that background eating in the temple restaurant or buying meat and it would affect them perhaps tempt them to go back into that type of lifestyle perhaps it would violate their conscience in doing so when a believer would say oh it's okay it's alright I mean it's just meat all it does is uh, help you be strong good protein and they would eat and they would violate their conscience and the principle that Paul tells us is in verse 8 of chapter 8 But take care, it says, that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And so out of consideration, Paul says, you know what, out of consideration, don't do it. Verse 13 of chapter 8. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. You see, we have the right to do many things. We have the freedom to do many things. And in some contexts, it may be perfectly fine. But in other contexts, we need to be careful because it might be a source of stumbling. So now when we come to chapter 9, what Paul does is he illustrates the principle. Not only in just eating of meat, but he illustrates in a very personal way that affects him. He gives a personal illustration of a right that he has. A liberty that he has, but he chose not to exercise. And that right has to do with compensating, remunerating, or paying, or supporting God's workers. The right to receive compensation. The right to receive pay for God's workers. And to be honest, it's a subject that's somewhat a bit awkward, you know. It's easily misunderstood and I can see perhaps how somebody might be sitting there and saying, Oh, look, there he is. He's talking about paying the pastor. Being self-serving or self-promoting. And to share with you at the onset, I'm very content. I'm from very happy just to how LHBC has always supported me. And even though some may advocate for more or less or whatever it might be, there's no veiled motive on my part. It's just simply the next chapter that we have covered here in the book of First Corinthians. So, whether it's difficult or easy, well, we come to a difficult part and somewhat awkward part. But when it comes to this subject, well, we have to address it. So... We come to this passage, and it seems as if, to me, I've heard people express a couple of different views when it comes to compensating God's workers, whether it is a missionary, a pastor, or whoever works for the Lord. I've heard a couple of different views. In fact, I remember one time when I was talking with another leader from another church. They were proudly sharing with me how a pastor was affiliated with their church. 
served and hardly received anything. Hardly received anything for their work for the Lord. When I was candidating on the East Coast many years ago, I remember the same sentiment when they were discussing, gosh, what should we pay Joe? Somebody said, well, keep him poor and keep him humble, unquote. On the flip side of the coin, I remember sitting in a congregation when I was in Texas and uh, they were doing their annual business meeting and in the Baptist church they were talking about the fact that, well, this is what we pay our pastor because they vote on all sorts of things. And so here the church leader stood up and the church leader explained to the congregation that they had done, looked at uh, churches that were comparable and they were done a survey and they had done some research to comparable churches and he was happy to announce that they were paying their pastor in the top 10% of similar ministries. On the one hand, one man was very happy to tell others about how little or next to nothing they could pay a minister. On the other hand, one was happy to tell their congregation that they were in the top tier of compensation for their pastor. Now, I realize that there is sensitivity to this issue, more than, more than likely, because oftentimes it is a, uh, an, an area that has been abused. It has been abused by the Catholic Church, by televangelists, by those who are what you would call health, wealth, prosperity, gospel preachers who would be there, hucksters and shenanigans who would try to milk everything out as much as they can. And I was aware of the sensitivity to the na- nature of the subject many years ago. When I graduated from seminary some 15 years ago, I was told I should never speak on this subject. Well, I haven't done so for some 15 years, but as I mentioned, we come to this chapter now. So Paul is addressing addressing this subject, but he's using it in an illustration, as an illustration of what he had just spoken on or written about in chapter 8. But in this text, he gives some very personal reasons as to why, why God's people should support God's messengers. And the first thing that he does here in chapter 9 is he establishes the fact that he is an apostle. And because he's an apostle, he has the right to receive support, but he's chosen not to exercise that freedom. And he begins here in a number of rhetorical questions that he asks and he expects, in the Greek language, he expects, and it is written such that he expects an affirmative answer. So he begins here with his credentials. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? In all of these rhetorical questions, it is written in such a way that the expected answer is yes, you are free. Yes, you are an apostle. But some in the Corinthian church, they thought to themselves, you know, Paul, Paul, he's not receiving anything. He's not receiving anything from us. Not like the other apostles. Perhaps he's not really an apostle. So he's not taking anything from us. Paul rebuts that by giving them two reasons. Number one, that he has personally seen the Lord Jesus. And secondly, the fruit of his ministry is them. The fruit of his ministry is them. Jesus appeared to Paul, remember on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9? He appeared to his servant Saul at that time and asked, Why are you persecuting me? 
And at least two other times recorded in the book of Acts, he had visions of Christ as well. One of the credentials, you see, of an apostle is that they have had seen the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, you look at some churches today, they will have certain individuals who come around town or whatever, they'll call themselves apostles. But we know today there are no apostles in the same sense that there are apostles back then. For the Ephesians 2.20 says that the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And the church has been around for some 2,000 years now. And if it's been around for some 2,000 years, there's no need to lay the foundation once again with apostles and prophets. And secondly, they haven't seen the Lord Jesus. So... We don't hold to the fact that, well, the idea that there are apostles and prophets running around today in the same sense as it was back then. But he affirms his own credentials, not only as an apostle, but by the fact that they are a seal. They are a seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Verse 2. The authentication of his ministry was them in the fruit that he bore. And seals were used all the time in those days. If you sold something to someone in a contract, you perhaps would put a little wax there, put your seal on it. Seals were used for contracts. Seals were used to to roll up scrolls. Seals were used in order to authenticate who the sender of that message was. And Paul's seal was them. Paul's seal was the fact that he had planted this church, that there was fruit in the church, and it was affirming for his apostleship. Not only had he seen the Lord Jesus, but he had established his credentials by their fruitfulness. So what were some of those rights, though, that he had? He mentions these rights as God's messengers. Verse 3 through 6. Basic needs, ministering with a wife, and financial support. Do we not have a right to eat or drink, he says? How about taking along a believing wife? Or maybe Barnabas and I, not all, are, are, are we the only ones who don't have the right to refrain from working? Basic needs, he says, this is something that, that, that apostles deserve. Basic needs, food, drink, clothing, whatever it is to minister. You see, in those days, an itinerant teacher would come and would teach in a particular town. And it was an honor in order to house that individual. It was an honor in order to feed that individual. At minimal, isn't this a reasonable expectation? But then he mentions something else, another basic right. To bring along a believing wife, and as the text says, even as the rest of the apostles. Do you realize the apostles were all married? They were married. Do you remember when when Peter's mother-in-law was ill? And he healed her? Well, if he had a mother-in-law, he must have had a wife. And here he says, even as the brothers of the Lord, James and John and Cephas, and he mentions them because likely they would be known. Remember, there's a faction in Corinth. There's a faction in Corinth. He said, well, we're followers of Peter. And I believe that this implies a number of things, even in this whole thing of taking along a, a believing wife. If possible, God's workers should be provided for such that their wife does not need to work. They can travel along with the apostle. They can support the the minister or whoever it is along with them and be partners in ministry. To be partners in ministry. You see, some churches have unrealistic expectations of the pastor's wife. 
Such that they will say, well, we get to hire one person, but we get two full-time workers. And that may be the case. If it is, it's voluntary and that's wonderful. But sometimes that's not possible. I know of one pastor and one missionary who uh, both have children who have special needs children. They have special needs children. And they're wonderful pastors wise, but they cannot do it all when their child needs special attention. Their child needs special, more time. And so the pastor's wife, priority-wise, is to be to one's family, to one God, to one's family and one's husband. And when they can, they minister alongside. But I believe that the verse implies that there is what? The idea that, you know what, if we can, take along a believing wife to minister alongside. To minister alongside as the pastor or missionary, whoever it is, ministers. They're partners in ministry. Not just in life. I, I think of this and I, I think of one, one case where there was a, somebody who was trying to set me up, you know. And they said, oh, how would you like to meet so-and-so? And I says, oh, what church do they go to? And they said, well, I don't know what church they go to, but they're not going to go crabbing with you, you know. I said, oh, okay. I had happened to have my crab nets out that day. And they said, well, I said, what do they do, etc., and all this sort of thing. And they said, well, they do this type of profession, but don't worry, you know, they're fine. You can do your deal and they'll do their deal. You know, lots of couples do that sort of a thing. And I thought to myself, that's not how it's supposed to be. There are partners in ministry and here the desire is that this apostle says, can we not have the right to take along a believing wife? They have every right to support. They have every right as well. Every right to not to have to work. That's the third area in a non-ministry profession. Even though many of them do. When I was in seminary, I learned that about a third of all pastors work a secondary occupation simply to make ends meet. Some might advocate that no pastor should receive any compensation whatsoever. And they'll uphold those who work and don't receive a dime. Paul's point was that other apostles receive it. All the other ones do. And if they did, don't Paul and Barnabas have that right as well? Basic needs. The blessing of taking along an accompanying wife. And Paul advocates that even though he was a widower. Right not to need to support themselves. And then Paul goes into six reasons. Six reasons why. Six reasons why God's people should support God's ministers. And they are because of societal customs, because of the law of God, because of reasonable expectations, because others receive support, because of the practice of the priesthood, and because of the command of Jesus. So we look at the first reason here in verse 7. The first reason to support God's messenger is because of societal customs. Verse 7. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense, or who plants a vineyard, who tends a flock... Does not use its milk. And the first reason is because society itself compensates people for their work. I mean, we've got a, over 100,000 troops serving overseas in other parts of the world and you never hear of them fighting during the day and when 5 p.m. comes, they put down their gun and say, oh, my shift is over, I've got to go work now to support myself. 
You don't hear of soldiers like that. You don't find them working another job at night simply to support the war effort. You don't hear of militaries that don't intend to pay their troops. You might have some despot that doesn't plan to, but their troops don't know. They have an expectation that they will be paid. Even mercenaries don't fight for free. And it says here, a vine grower or a shepherd doesn't do it for free either. Vine growers, they take time, they pick the fruit, they eat some sometimes, or those who are shepherds, they milk and they drink some of the milk. I mean, if you work for McDonald's, you'd get a free meal. Whatever it might be, they give you a cut. They might give you a discount if you work for Home Depot or whoever it is. You have a benefit as a part of that company. It's the custom of society. Secondly, the law of God. Paul says in verse 8, it's not just human judgment. It is the law of God. Verse 8, does not the law also say these things? You should not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. The second reason is because the word of God says so. And in the Old Testament, in number Deuteronomy 25.4, it has this particular verse. Do not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Now the Israelites picked up something from the Egyptians. The Egyptians would thresh their grain. They would throw their grain out on a threshing floor. A flat, hard surface. And they would take a stone. They would throw their grain out on this threshing floor. They would take a, a stone... Flat, round, usually they would tie it to an ox. And they would tie it to an ox and the ox would drag the stone around the threshing floor and it would separate the grain from the husk or separate the grain from the the chaff or whatever it might be. And it would leave behind the grain. And if you decided, you know what, you were thrifty, you didn't want that ox to eat some of that grain, you would put a muzzle on him. And by the end of the day, you would have one angry, frustrated ox. Don't thrust, don't muzzle the ox. That's what the principle would be. It's like telling a chef, all day long you cook, but don't ever taste any of the food that you're cooking. The same would be true of the person who plows the field, it says. They get up before sunrise, they have back-breaking work all day, they work day and night, and they go to sleep, they should have a share of the harvest. It's not just human reasoning, it is the law of God that one should share in the fruits of the harvest. You know, a couple weeks ago, I was sitting on the board of a mission organization and they had a cutback. They had cutbacks for a number of days that some of the staff were working because the donations for every mission organization has dropped because of the economy. And many have had to cut back and some have had to pull their missionaries off of the field. And I know times are tight, but what was encouraging to hear What was encouraging to hear was even though they had cut back, and the way they cut back was they had some days which were called furlough days in which they would not have their workers work. And they would save some some money because they had to make ends meet. But what was so encouraging was that if at the end of the year the expected, the expected amount was above that amount, The expected amount was a surplus at the end of the year. They didn't just squirrel it away and say, wow, look at how much we saved. No. They gave it back to those who had faithfully taken an involuntary pay reduction over the course of that year. They should see that as a blessing. 
They should see that as a blessing. Many companies do that. At the end of the year, you share in a bonus that the company has because you share in the company's success. And that flows to the next reason why God's workers should be supported. It is because it is a reasonable expectation. Verse 11. If we sowed spiritual things, is it too much if we reap material things for you? It's very reasonable. People expect that people should be compensated for their work. In the U.S., we have a minimum wage law. Some states like ours, they even have a living wage standard. And others have other standards. All of these are built because it is a reasonable expectation to expect a fair wage from working. James chapter 5. If you turn your Bibles with me to James chapter 5, it speaks of those who are bosses. And if you oversee others or you're a manager or you're a higher employer, James chapter 5 verse 4. It's a condemnation upon those who have wealth and hire others. It says in verse 4, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld from you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. You have lived in luxury on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. These, are, these people who had worked for their employers weren't faithfully paid. They weren't compensated fairly. And they cried out to God. And God says, you know what? Judgment will come. And God condemns those who are employers, who are wealthy from withholding pay from those who have worked for it because it is unjust. The philosophy isn't, let's see how little we can pay them for their work. It should be, well, it shouldn't be like, well, X number of years ago, I only started working at a dime an hour and that should be your pay as well. That kind of thing makes people cry out to God because of the injustice. And if you've worked for someone else, you have a manager, you have an employer, you know what I'm speaking of. There are times when perhaps you've been perhaps unfairly treated. There would be times perhaps when they've been fair and more than generous. But there are other employers who perhaps have taken advantage of you. And some may think, well, should missionaries be asking for funds? After all, they're doing God's work. And God will provide if they trust in God. They shouldn't need or expect anything. Well, the reason that Paul gives here is that it is wholly reasonable to expect material rewards. It is wholly reasonable. And he gives another reason in verse 12. Because others receive support. Because others receive support. If others share the right over you, verse 12, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endured all things so that we would cause no hindrance against the gospel of Christ. Others receive support. Shouldn't Paul and Barnabas? Reiterating the fact that, you know what? All the apostles did. Why shouldn't they? Are they more undeserving? Was it because Paul wasn't a great man of stature? Was it because Paul wasn't well-spoken? He wasn't a person who was good in speech? Was it was because Paul was a widower? Was it because they took him for granted or he was a tent maker and so they said, well, he's a tent maker. That saves us some funds or whatever it might be. Was it because of Paul's past history that maybe he was one who persecuted Christians and now has come to know the Lord and because of his past they said, well, no. 
Paul deserved it just like the other apostles did, but he didn't take it that he might cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. He didn't want it to become a stumbling block for them. And we'll see that in verse 15 when he reiterates that. But another reason why Paul gives, the fifth reason, which is because it is the practice of the priesthood. Verse 13. Because it is the practice of the priesthood. Don't you know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? You know, in the Old Testament, when somebody would bring some food to the temple, they would take a portion of that and they would give a portion of that meat to the Levites. That was their support. They would pay it in food so they would be sustained, so that they would be able to feed their families. And even in the pagan temples, even in the pagan belief system, they divided into thirds. A third for the God, a third for the priests, and a third for sale or whatever it might be. Those who attend regularly, it says in the text, have their share. Attending regularly. In other words, it's not some itinerant thing which happens once in a blue moon. But those who regularly attend to the temple had their compensation from what was given. Lastly, verse 14, the sixth reason that he gives for supporting God's workers is Jesus' instruction. Jesus' instruction. Lastly, it says here, as the Lord directed to those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Paul was referring perhaps to the command that the Lord Jesus gave in Luke 10 to the 70. Or perhaps to some unrecorded teaching. But either way, it was the command of the Lord Jesus himself that says what? We should support those who are God's workers. So, why should God's workers receive Compensation or support or remuneration? Because of societal customs. That's what it is in society. Because of the law of God. The Old Testament dictated it. Because it is a reasonable expectation. Because others receive support. Because of the practice of God's priesthood. And because of the command of the Lord Jesus Himself. So it is a command by God to God's people. That they ought to support God's workers. That being said... However, it is not a command that God's workers are obligated to receive that support. On the one hand, it is God's command that they give and support. It is not a command to receive or ask. Support is a liberty, and it is a liberty that Paul, in this case, as I mentioned to you, decided to forsake. Every worker has the right to refuse the support that is offered. He says, but I have used none of these things, verse 15. I've used none of these things. And he does it for a number of reasons. And these reasons are given here. Even though he had the reasons listed here, in fact, he clearly states, am I not writing these things so that you will, so it will be done? And I am not writing these things so it will be done so in my case. In other words, he's saying, what? I'm not writing these things to you so that you'll begin to support me, he says to them. He says, I'm not writing these things. That's not my intention that these things be given to me now that I have stated a half a dozen reasons and reminded you of God's command. Paul's intention for them is what? That Christian liberties should be surrendered, can be surrendered, ought to be surrendered for the sake of others if they were to cause them to stumble. In this case, Paul chose not to receive support. 
In this case, Paul chose not to receive compensation. Why? Verse 12. He didn't want it to be a hindrance to the gospel. In other words, he didn't want people to think that he was preaching for money. Verse 16. He was compelled to do it. He was compelled to do it. Ministry was not a job. It was not a profession. It's not one of these things where, oh, I decide I'm going to major in that. It's not one of many options. You know, many years ago when I was thinking, I began thinking about the ministry and the Lord had laid it on my heart. That is what I wanted to do. I remember being told, if there's anything else you'd be content in doing, go and do that instead. Go and do that instead. If you'd be happy being an engineer, if you'd be happy being a musician, if you'd be happy doing whatever else, other than being in the ministry, go and do that instead. And that's not such a bad sentiment. Because there are plenty of inherent difficulties in the ministry. Unless one is called or compelled, they intend to quit. And when I was in seminary, when we got in there the very first year, I remember them telling telling us, the whole class of us, that there would be some low percentage, something like only 10% of you will end up serving the Lord until the day you die. The rest of you will quit. I didn't want to be among the 90% or whatever that high percentage was. But he was compelled to do it. That's the second reason. And thirdly, he had a reward that he could offer the gospel free of charge. He didn't want to give up that reward that he would receive, that privilege of ministry. And it's not that Paul never received support. When he left Thessalonica, if you turn in your Bibles to the next book, the 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 7. Paul writes about his support. 2 Corinthians 11. But it didn't come at that time from the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7. He writes, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? Verse 8. I robbed, I robbed other churches. And it's a figure of speech. I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. You see, in the book of 2 Corinthians, he reiterates the fact that he was not a burden to them in any way. But he did receive support, likely from the church at Thessalonica. Brothers came from Macedonia and he took wages from them to serve. When Paul ministered among this young church, this church that was rife with problems, he freely gave up this liberty. Why? He didn't want it to be a burden. He didn't want to be a hindrance to the gospel. He had a reward and he was compelled to do it. So, the question is, should refusing all support be the standard as Paul Is Paul's refusal of support superior to that of the other apostles? Just in the same vein, should everyone remain single like Paul and not get married? To be a tent maker, to refuse this liberty, 
should missionaries never ask for support from others? When we apply this passage to the life of God's workers, whether they be a pastor or a missionary, whoever it is, the answer would be what? It depends. It depends. And you remember the flow of this passage. It comes from chapter 8, which speaks of Christian liberties. And in chapter 9, he illustrates it with a very personal illustration regarding his own support. And in chapter 8, the question was, should people eat meat? Sacrifice to idols. And the answer was what? It depends. It depends. Depends on what? Whether or not such an action would cause another to stumble. Whether or not it would be a hindrance. Whether or not it would be a hindrance to the gospel. Whether or not it would be something that would cause another person to say, you know what, I don't even want to be a part of that. The answer would be yes. Then the right thing to do would be to forgo that liberty. If not, be perfectly fine to receive it. For example, if somebody were going overseas to do missions work, they were doing a, planting a church, or planting a church that was very young, very immature, they didn't know what the Word of God said, or they were ministering among very poor people, what could be a hindrance to the gospel? A hindrance to the gospel that if someone were doing evangelistic work, And their expectation was that these young believers who didn't know much would support them. It might be a source of stumbling. It might be a wise thing to withdraw and not have that liberty taken. Or if they were ministering in a church that was very immature, that was fractionalized. They had lawsuits in Corinth. They had immorality in Corinth. There would be completely differing views because they were so divided as a church. Then it would be a source of stumbling. And therefore it would be wise to forgo such a thing in a church such as this. When this church, I can think of, when this church, this ministry was in its very early years... The church wasn't able to support financially multiple staff. And so when I and another pastor came, I remember the first early years we received a stipend that was very well below the poverty level of the U.S. And so we worked another job in order to receive more income to support ourselves and we would still be able to serve. We both lived at home to save money and we're very, very blessed to have that. The church finally became much more self-sufficient over the years and became more mature. And at that time, it was appropriate, though. It was appropriate to forgo an expectation. You know, people have asked me over the years whether it be to help them with some sort of ministry, a funeral, a wedding, or speaking engagement. They've asked me, well, what's your fee? What's your fee? And I've always told them, I don't have a fee. I don't have a fee. If I'm able to do it, I would be happy to do it. I would be happy to do it from funerals to opportunities to preach to weddings or whatever it means, whatever it would be, whether it be for a Christian or a non-Christian in certain contexts. If I receive something, that's great. If I don't, that's fine. I've received everything from nothing to a dinner to a Starbucks card to generous honorariums. Whatever it might be is completely fine. Certainly I've never asked and I don't have a fee. To receive something is not wrong. Certainly is a reasonable thing according to the text. 
But if it would be a source of stumbling for someone else, whether it is eating or drinking, as in chapter 8 it says, whether it be to forgo even the reception of some compensation for the cause of the gospel, then it would be wiser to forgo that liberty. So the question for all of us at hand is this. Is there an area of liberty that we have? Is there a liberty that we engage in? Something that we perhaps may disagree with other Christians on that we ought to give up or are willing to give up for the sake of our testimony for Christ. That it not be a stumbling block and cause others to sin. That is the basic principle here. Whether it is basic as something we eat or whether it is as important as support, we may quote-unquote feel we have the right to do it, that it is not against the law of God, that it is not against the law of the land. Are we willing to give it up because we love our brethren and we want to see people come to know Christ? Are we willing to give it up for the sake of others that they might know God? Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, I pray that you would examine our own hearts. Mine as well. God, I pray many of us have liberties perhaps that we engage in. That perhaps, Father, we ought not to. For the sake of testimony... And I pray, Father, that you would help us to understand and know your word. That you, Father, desire that we do all we can. That we might not be a stumbling block to those who see our lives. We give you thanks, O God, for your word. Strengthen our faith and reveal to us in our hearts areas in which we fall short. In Jesus' most precious name, amen.